This is a Jewish TV channel presentation. Welcome to Talking Point, where controversial subjects are brought into sharp focus. Conversations with JTVC show host Laura Kessler comes up next. Welcome to Talking Point, where controversial subjects are brought into sharp focus. I'm Laura Kessler. Today we'll be talking about the state of Jewish education in America and whether we're preparing our kids adequately for the challenges they face in the 21st century. Each generation has the obligation of Lador Vador, passing on our Jewish heritage to the next generation to ensure our continuation and survival. In the past, we historically lived in small villages or shtetls where the process of Jewish education took place pretty organically and holistically. Some of us even have grandparents or parents like my father who had that same intimate Jewish upbringing right here in America decades ago. My dad spoke fondly of a simpler time when everything took place in one small synagogue and the rabbi doubled as the basketball coach and the music teacher and the carpenter, humble as it was, those friendships and connections lasted for a lifetime. But in the late 20th century, between technological advances and other changes, there was a shift away from the shtetl model into a more corporate federation model of Jewish community life that separated some of the religious training from the cultural activities under a different umbrella. Many Jewish American parents began to rely more on Sunday schools and Hebrew schools to transmit aspects of history and culture that once were learned through osmosis, simply from sitting in the kitchen or at a typical multi-generational family dinner. My guest today is an expert in the field of Jewish education, contemporary anti-Semitism, and the history of the Jewish people in the Arab-Israeli conflict. Dr. Nyalect was born in the former Soviet Union and immigrated to the United States with her family in 1989. Naya is the Director of Education for Club Z, a rapidly growing Zionist youth movement where she's created a unique curriculum on the Arab-Israeli conflict, Zionism, and anti-Semitism, which is currently being taught to Jewish teens all across the nation. She received her PhD from UCLA, where she wrote about Holocaust literature in the Soviet Union. In 2018, Naya was a scholar-in-residence at Oxford University through ISGAP, where she wrote curriculum for high school and university level students on a history of anti-Semitism. Naya is also an accomplished journalist who speaks widely on the topic of contemporary anti-Semitism. As an experienced educator and curriculum creator, Naya identified a problem within Jewish institutions in America when she came across students who did not know the history of anti-Semitism. Naya's experience developing curriculum and working with Jewish teens informs her approach on innovative methods, which helps learners to identify contemporary anti-Semitism. And we're very honored to have her with us today. Welcome, Naya. Thank you so much for having me. This is such an honor and such an important topic. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much again. No, thank you. So, Naya... I come from three generations of teachers, and I'm a teacher myself of 25 years, but you strike me as a teacher's teacher. You truly love putting curriculum together. And as we know, not all teachers love that aspect or even do it well. 
So as a scholar, you don't simply lecture at people. You also give other teachers the tools to become better teachers yourself. What inspires you to be become a teacher, and why is it meaningful to you? Well, you know, as a little girl, I, I always knew I was going to. I really loved performing. I loved uh, being on stage, and I also really loved to teach, and I was inspired by my teachers. I had I was very lucky and fortunate. I had wonderful teachers. And I was just, as I said, I, I always wanted to, 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 to use the classroom as, as, as a place to inspire and empower um, learners. And then I went to grad school, as you mentioned, um, in Slavic languages and literatures, or it's fancy for Russian literature, really. And while I was in graduate school, I was a teacher's assistant for a few years. And it was there that I realized that my passion is really education and curriculum. And I was looking at fellow professors or even colleagues, and I noticed that they were lecturing. They were they did great research, but they didn't have the skill, which is to unpack really complex ideas for people to go and then, you know, talk about them, learn about them. I had really great evaluations from my um, students at UCLA. I taught at UCLA and then was um, for a while I was at Cal State Long Beach. And I loved to create innovative ways of, of teaching Dostoevsky, for instance, or Tolstoy, or even the Holocaust or Soviet history. I just was always inspired by the idea that teaching is a very sacred place. Teaching is, if done correctly, is such a empowering place to just really connect with people, uh, connect with people over ideas. Um, and for me, it transferred not just in my love for teaching, let's say, in Russian literature. I always saw that there was a problem, and we can get into it later, within the Jewish establishment in terms of Jewish institutions and education. I myself was a student in Jewish day schools, and we can go into that later. And about four years ago, I transitioned from out of academia into the Jewish nonprofit world and took on a really amazing journey, which was to write curriculum for teenagers to inspire them to reclaim their Jewish identity and to combat contemporary anti-Semitism. And you have the rare ability to really break down those complex, wonky academic subjects into user-friendly nuggets. I'm just curious, do you think there's advantages to teaching outside of academia? I think that teaching outside of academia is actually very, very interesting because in academia, you are kind of constricted by, um, you know, these are people who are taking the class for a grade or they're taking the class to to fulfill fulfill a major or minor requirement. Um, it's really fun to teach in the academic setting, um, but what you get to do outside of academia, which I believe is I, you get to really shape identity. Um, you get to go much more on a personal level outside of academia. That to me is exciting mm-hmm. and, and, and challenging, and, and I love it. I love it. Well, I definitely want to talk to you about identity today, and I want to start with yours and how your outlook was shaped 
You were born in the former Soviet Union, and I know that had a major influence on you. Can you talk about how your upbringing shaped your views, and especially how the experiences of your parents and grandparents directly influenced you? So I came from Ukraine in 1989. At that time, it was the uh, tail end of the Soviet Union. And we came through Italy. We came uh, as refugees, and we came to Los Angeles, to Southern California. And I was six years old. And, you know, I'm not going to say to your listeners here today that, you know, I know what it's like to grow up in a totalitarian Marxist regime. I don't. But my parents did and my grandparents did. And I grew up kind of what you were saying in the beginning, by osmosis, by listening to their stories. I kind of internalized these stories about growing up. I have tons of stories of what my father went through as a Jew what my mother went through as a Jew, what my aunt and grandfather went through in terms of reading forbidden literature in, in a totalitarian regime. Um, so I have all these stories that really informed who I am and how I understand the world. My grandfather was born in what was then Poland. It's today Belarus, And he escaped Nazi regime. He, he, he escaped. At, how did he escape? He fled east towards the Soviet Union on a bicycle. He fled east on a bicycle, left his mother, his um, brother, his younger brother, his father, his older brother. They perished. In, mm-hmm. They perished, okay? Uh, my His mother and his younger brother were um, burned alive in a synagogue in the town that oh. he's from, which is Baranevice. Um, mm-hmm. His older brother was shot in a ghetto. Um and actually, their names are in Yad Vashem. Um, I, we just found out a few years ago. Their names are inscribed in this wall of um, victims of the Holocaust. So he fled. Wow. Yeah. So, and, and as a child, he would tell me these stories. And I didn't, he told me all the time when we would drive, he would drive me to school. He wanted so much to talk about his upbringing. He loved Yiddish language. He loved Yiddish songs. All the time in the car, all he played were Yiddish songs by Sister Barry and translated them for me. And, you know, it was, it was wonderful, but, but he just could not stop talking about his family. He talked a lot about them. He talked a lot about his journey fleeing on a bicycle towards the east. And, and his, he had a, had a whole other adventure for him. So that's my grandfather. He actually became a teacher. He became a physics teacher in the mm-hmm. Soviet Union. My, my grandmother's from Romania, Bucharest. Um, this is all from my mother's side. And she and my grandfather met in um, the town that I was born, the city that I was born in, which is Chernovitz, which is uh, mm-hmm. today we're, uh, we're talking about uh, Western Ukraine um, on the border of Romania um, and, and Ukraine. My grandfather used to joke that in those days, you go to sleep in Romania, you wake up in the Soviet Union. I mean, borders were constantly <laughs> shifting. Yeah. Right? Um, and it's, e- it's easy to see where that type of upbringing has influenced you in your career. Right. And, and you know, somebody once asked me, when did you become a professional, quote-unquote, Zionist? And I thought to myself, what a strange question. And it, nothing bad to the person who posed the question, but... You know, in our house, the word Zionism 
the word Israel, the word Yiddishkeit was just part of our mama lotion, which is like the mother tongue in Yiddish. Right, we, right. It was just there, but we were not religious at all, right? Because Soviet Jews or Russian-speaking Jews, most of them were very secular. We were very, my parents did not know prayers. They didn't understand what, I have never, I didn't even, have never had a bat mitzvah. Um, it's just, we were very secular, but we had another identity that is really important, and that is our ethnic identity. And we we can go later into mm-hmm. what, um, the differences yeah. between American Jews and Soviet um, Jews. But so that's my grandfather. His story really, really imprinted onto me deeply. Um, my mother, my mother, um, you know, she she's an avid reader, and interestingly enough, in in the Soviet Union one of the ways that Jews could learn about their Jewish identity was through reading. And there was a really famous German Jewish writer. His name was Leon Fuchtfanger. It's a funny name. Mm -hmm. But he wrote a lot of historical novels that took place in Judea, that took place in the ancestral Jewish homeland. And my mother would tell me, you know, she would beg me to read, but they were these big tomes and I wasn't, into history when I was 12, 13 years old. <laughs> but again, in her car, she would tell me about Judea, about the Roman um, exile, I mean, the, the the exile of the Jews by the Romans, about um, Jerusalem and the importance of Jerusalem, um, about Herod's temple. I mean, she would tell me all these things. She would tell me about the origins of the word Palestine so that when I did come to college campus, I was prepared, but I was prepared because I had Russian-speaking Jewish parents, not so much because of my Jewish education. So I'll just leave that there. Right. We could discuss that. Right. But the, right. that that really is kind of my, my family in a nutshell. Sounds wonderful. Sounds wonderful. And, you know, Jewish identity is such, it's such a difficult thing for some people to... Uh, you know, just identify exactly what it is. So lately we've heard so many waves of despair about the systemic assault on Jewish identity, especially on college campuses, but now even high schools and grade schools, kids are being Mm -hmm. bullied. We have, you know, at at Berkeley Law School, at at CUNY, Mm -hmm. there's, there's so many different ones. And I want to just have you break it down. What does it mean to have a strong Jewish identity, and how do you give this to a child? I think you sort of already explained how your parents did, but let so let me go a step further. Whose responsibility is it to instill Jewish identity? And historically, now that you're an American citizen, I mean, do you think some parents have relied too much on Jewish educators alone to achieve this? Wow, <laughs> such a good question. So as a Jewish educator, I call myself a Jewish educator now, I'll be the first to say that it has been a terrible, terrible thing that American Jewish families have outsourced one of the most important things, which is Jewish identity to secular Jewish education, camps, Hebrew schools. I recently received an email from a a parent um, who in her email was heartbreaking, said, and she, by the way, she came from the former Soviet Union, like myself. And she said, I was 
I, I sent my children from K through 12th grade, so K through 12th grade, to a Jewish day school thinking that they would come out proud Jews. She, and she said, to, to my dismay, to my embarrassment, my daughter, who is in college now, does not identify publicly or even much as a Jew. And she said, mm-hmm. where, did I, where did I go wrong? Why, why did I trust these mm-hmm. institutions? This isn't the first time I've heard this, but it was the most recent email that I received. I um, hear it a so lot you too, asked me, from different right, people. Yeah. Look, I went to a Jewish day school. I, I'll, I'll use myself as an example, right? I went to, in Los Angeles, a very, very po- uh, popular mm, conservative Jewish day school from grades one to grade eight. So seven years or so I was in a Jewish day school. And this was in the 90s. So anti-Zionism wasn't really such such an issue as it is today or after 2000, after the year uh, 2000. But even if I, you know, when I reflect back on how they packaged to us Jewish history, you know, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, they didn't connect these people to us today. These were just fairy tales. I mean, just like almost Greek gods, Jewish gods, if you will. They were just like a mythology of these characters. And that's number one. Number two, I really thought, it was just very embarrassing to admit, but I really thought for many years that Herzl invented the idea of a Jewish homeland. So he had this dream in Switzerland. He woke <laughs> up and he was like, oh my God, we have to build a Jewish homeland. I had, no, had it not been for my mother who told me about Judea, who told me about um, Herod and the second temple that he commissioned to build, all these stories that she had told me, I would have thought, mm-hmm. much like many American Jews, that 1948 is the birth of the Jewish state. But it's not, it's mm-hmm. the rebirth. And that's really important. <clears throat> and yeah. that's what's missing, yeah. is how we're telling our story. We're not telling it from the beginning. You know, this is so true, and I grew up and I went to what would be the Midwest equivalent of a a small co-ed, you know, yeshiva sort of, and I mean, Mm -hmm. we had an excellent education too, Um, but I think think it's the way the curriculum everywhere was at the time. Uh, It was really focused on, as you said, you know, the the ancient history and also a lot of Holocaust history, understandably. Mm -hmm. Um, but I do think that as a whole, that it wasn't really until I was in youth groups that I felt a connection to contemporary Judaism. And I know we're going to talk about Club C soon, but that brings me to the next question. Is, I mean, and I know the answer already, <laughs> I kind of agree, is shouldn't mm-hmm. everybody be more aware of Lador Vador? I mean, where somehow it feels like we're failing next. Uh, one generation or another, it just feels like we've dropped the ball somewhere. Is that too harsh to say? No, it's not. I mean, you had asked me a very pointed and important question. You said, whose responsibility is it? Um, I think it's the parents' responsibility. I think that parents need to know what are, you know, if they're not doing it at home and if they are outsourcing it to a youth group or to a um, Jewish institution or to a Jewish school, just like they're asking what their kids are learning in school, 
they should be asking, what are you learning in Hebrew school? What are you learning in, in day school? What did you learn in your youth group? Uh, they should be asking these questions. Um, the other problem is, is, and I'll tell you this much, is that Jewish literacy in general, and I'm not talking about the ability to read in Hebrew, I mean literacy in terms of understanding our own history, even among adults. Mm-hmm. Forget, no, I'm not even talking about teens. Parents is low. How many parents I've come across when they ask, well, can you open a parent class? Because some of the things that you guys teach in Club Z to our kids, we have never heard of this. Um, so I've had parents who tell me, and this is mostly American parents, that the kids are educating them about Jewish history. Wow. So, yes, somebody dropped the ball. And, look, we can have a conversation about who, when, how did they drop the ball. Where, I mean, I have some ideas. But there was a conscious, I believe there was a conscious decision made in Jewish education institutions to not talk about Israel, to not talk about the conflict, to not talk about post-Holocaust anti-Semitism. I think that was a conscious decision that informed the lack of robust or any curriculum on Israel. Now, when is this? What decade are you talking? Um... I would say that it was in the, it's hard for me to give you an exact, I'm not going to give you an exact kind of, I would give you the 1990s, the late 1990s. Okay. And I'll, tell, and I'll, I'll explain to you. Um, in terms of American Jewish identity and its allegiance or affinity towards Israel, it was super strong, especially after the Six-Day War in 67. This reawakened Jewish pride. American Jews were like, wow, we, you know, this kind of idea of David and Goliath. We, the underdog, meaning Israel, won. These Arab armies, despite all odds, we won. So it was, it was, it was an injection of this Jewish pride worldwide, really in American Jewry and also Soviet Jewry. In the 1980s, Israel fought a war in the north with Lebanon, Sabra and Shatila which are considered by many historians as massacres um, where IDF was involved, was a game changer for American Jews. Um, This was a turning point. This was the late 80s where American Jews started to look at Israel from a very different lens, uh, a lens where power is bad and the underdog is good. And Israel is a powerful mm-hmm. country. You can't deny it. And so what happened was there started to be a distancing between American Jewry and the idea of Israel or Israel. They started, there, the, the, there was a gap that was forming. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. As such, Jewish educators getting their signals from above, from these institutions, from the federations, from Jewish day schools, from the Bureau of Jewish Education, we're getting a kind of trickle-down, top-down effect of, you know what, if you're going to talk about Israel, talk about it in this, like, innovation nation, irrigation drip system, cherry tomatoes. Don't talk about the conflict because we have something to be ashamed of. We did something wrong. We don't want to talk about the conflict. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't want to. we don't want to look at Israel in this new paradigm, which is, well, Israel is powerful. And we've been taught that power is bad and corrupt. 
And so they just decided we're not going to talk about Israel in schools. And if we are, we're going to talk about it in these, like, uh, uh, like I said, very, very kind of, you know, just celebration of, of technology in Israel, celebration of the innovation. The book came out, Innovation Nation, uh, about that time. Mm-hmm. And, and, and they didn't want to touch it. They didn't want to touch the actual important stuff, which is, yes, let's talk about the conflict. Yes, let's talk about the Six-Day War. Let's talk about the war and with Lebanon. Let's talk about the intifadas. Let, you know, let's go there. And people didn't want to. Do you think that's maybe a symptom of Jewish intergenerational PTSD? I mean, we still have multiple generations have gone through so many different things. And is, is it a visibility thing of, you know, we're more comfortable being the underdog? We're not comfortable uh, psychologically? We, we like being successful, but, you know, we're still not comfortable with it, do you think? You hit the nail right on the head. If we're going to psychoanalyze this um, situation, I think that Amer- Jews in general are uncomfortable with having power and strength. Uh, what is Israel? Israel is Jewish nationalism. Jew is the idea of the particular, it's a particular people with a particular piece of land. It's strong borders. It's a Jewish majority country. And sadly, many Jews are not ready for that. It makes them uncomfortable. And I speak to many Jewish communities. And the biggest pushback I get is they do not want Israel to be a Jewish majority country. That makes them uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. They don't. No, what's it? They're not ready. It's, it saddens me. It, I'm sorry to interrupt. It's just that they're not ready for saying, you know what? We deserve a seat at the international table, not because we are persecuted, but because we are no different than any other people and we have a right to self determination in our ancestral homeland. Mm-hmm. Well said. And. And you wrote a wonderful article about this just last week uh, about that, that Israel, Israel doesn't need permission to exist, which right. shouldn't have to be said and yet needs to be. And, you know, I wonder, to me, I see this quite interesting from generation to generation, and it's understandable that there are generational differences. You have, you know, the Holocaust generation, then you had people who were first-generation Americans, and then the people after that, like myself, and then you have people growing up now where never before has there been more of a time where everybody is celebrating their ethnic identity, their this and that identity, except the Jew. And it it feels like we're somehow left out of of this whole frenzy. And I want to segue I want you to uh, talk to that and also segue into what we spoke about earlier about the antenna that American mm-hmm. Jewish kids need to, to recognize mm-hmm. anti-Semitism. Mm-hmm. So if you could get into that. Sure, sure. Uh, okay, so I'll just backtrack a bit. When I was teaching at UCLA, I um, developed a course on Russian Jewish history. And I was teaching the class, and I remember one day um, we, were discuss- I don't- we were discussing something, and I remember I referenced Protocols of the Elders of Zion, blood libel, and I looked around the room and I looked at the students, and the, most of the students who were in my class were Jewish, and I could tell that they didn't understand what I, what I said, and I said, okay, guys, 
don't be, you know, I'm not grading you on this. Just raise your hand. Have you ever heard of the protocols of the elders of Zion? Nothing. Maybe one, two. Uh, have you heard of blood libel? Maybe three kids. I thought to myself, wow, this is, this is a problem. Um, this is a problem. Why is this a problem? Because here we have a proliferation of anti-Semitism known as anti-Zionism, and people don't know how to combat it because they're missing the first step, which is learning to identify it. They don't know mm-hmm. what they're looking mm-hmm. for, and when, or, or they're looking for something, one thing, the, what they were taught. For instance, anti-Semitism from the right, neo-Nazi, um, swastikas, fascism. They're, look, they're, they're very well trained, and they can tell you that 100% is anti-Semitism. But spray painting free Palestine on a synagogue they go, they scratch their heads. Well, is this, you know, it's a political statement, they start saying. And I went and, mm-hmm. and I said, and I decided I want to devote my time to not just researching anti-Semitism, but with the goal of teaching about it. Because I thought that we all, I have this, you know, cute little idea that we all have these antennas. Um, and our antennas are always picking up signals, but sometimes they're not, sometimes they're dormant. Now, my antennas are super, as I say, on alert. They're, 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 sometimes, you know, I have to calibrate my antennas because I see sometimes anti-Semitism where there isn't, right? You also have to check your antennas. Mm-hmm. Why? Because, again, of my Russian-speaking parents who taught me a lot about um, anti-Zionism. When I went to college, I saw anti-Zionism. And when I went to ring the alarm bells and I went to Jewish uh, institutions on campus, such as Hillel, the director, and said, you know, what I just experienced is really terrible and give the example. And they they would tell me, no, 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 that's not anti-Semitism. That's just criticism, political, you know, a political misunderstanding or somebody, it's it's their freedom to have a political critiquing of Israel. Mm -hmm. And of course, I'm like, I'm 18, 19 at the time. I do not have the vocabulary. I do not have all this knowledge. But fast track to, again, where I was at UCLA, and I decided to then pivot and devote so much time to studying it in order to teach about it, I realized that because American Jews have had a quote-unquote vacation from history, their antennas are sort of dormant, okay? But it's mm-hmm. they've been lucky, you know? They didn't have to have what my father went through. My father is a doctor, and he was in, 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 in his... um medical school in Lviv, he came one day and his white coat was, uh, they put Yud on his white coat in red letters, like Jude, in J-U-D-E, Yud. Okay, Um, my mother was told to go back to Palestine. Okay, so the American Jews didn't have that experience in the 80s, in the Mm -hmm. 90s, in the 70s. And so they had this amazing respite from what I call Jewish history. And now it's time to come back. Jewish history is back. And it's my job to help them tune their antennas, to help them identify anti-Semitism. So what I did is, and we can, this is a big conversation about how do you teach about anti-Semitism? Do you go with the methodology of looking at definitions like IRA, 3D test? There are all these definitions. Mm-hmm. Or is there another another methodology. And I said, you know, initially, of course, I went the route of let, let's have a really good definition. If we have a really good definition, then we could just teach the definition mm-hmm. and then the students, learners would know and they would recognize it. And then 
The best research for a pedagogue or an educator is the classroom. And I remember I was teaching a class on the history of anti-Semitism at a Jewish day school for seniors in Los Angeles. And I noticed that going the route of here, here's a definition. With the definition, you'll definitely be able to tell what is anti-Zionism. It didn't work. I'm, it didn't work. Yeah, it was, it was, I was very, very devastated that day um, because here I thought I, I nailed it. I knew how to teach about anti-Semitism. I, I mm-hmm. got it. And I remember I, I left the school and I called my mom and I was very upset and I said, Mom, I don't know. I, I've been working on teaching about anti-Semitism. I just went to a Jewish school. Not only did it not work, they pushed back. Um, and then I really? thought to myself, there must be, yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the, I showed them cartoons. The, one of the cartoons I showed them was an IDF soldier sticking, um, who had a dagger in his hand, and, th- and, and the dagger was straight into the heart of a Palestinian child with blood everywhere. And they told me the students, these are Jewish students at a modern Orthodox school at seniors, okay? They do not think it's anti-Semitism. They think it's criticism of the IDF. If you saw hmm. the image, it would, it would not miss you. And I was so upset that day. But I, I really, I, that day I credit with m- me having to go back to the drawing board and saying, no, I'm, I'm going to teach it a different way. I'm going to teach anti-Semitism through what I call the six accusations. This idea that okay, let's not look at definitions right now. Let's not even look look at who the victim in the or who the perpetrator is. Let's look at the trope. And there are six accusations waged against Jews or Israel, whether in the 14th, 19th, or 21st century. And if you can see the accusation, then you can see past the you know sorry BS or nicely cloaked anti-Semitism. So, for mm-hmm. example, mm-hmm. you have a, you have someone who come to college campus with a very sophisticated degree and sophisticated language, and will say that they are going to critique the Israeli government, and then they slip in the following. You know, they start with the, you know, uh, you know, whatever they start. What they slip in is the following. I'm here to talk about Israel. I'm here to discuss the government and the systemic, indiscriminatory murder of Palestinian children by the Israeli government. And that's Mm. blood libel. That's blood libel. But they're cloaking it as, oh, I'm here to discuss the government, I'm here to discuss... But then they traffic in these classic anti-Semitic, classical anti-Semitic tropes. Well, they've taken the narrative that way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. No, 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 I was just that, that that is the way that I desi- designed a different entry point into talking about anti-Semitism, into saying, okay, we we don't have the time to go through all of Jewish history, you know, under the Romans, under the Greeks, uh, Jews in medieval Europe. We don't have time for all that. Let's look at right. at the accusations. So I want to pick it up from there because that this is so true. I see so often in the grassroots movements, people will see something distressing that you know is in short form, a meme or an article or something short, and everybody will respond to it with war and peace. You know, we have got three thousand years of Israel history, and the sad reality is 
people probably, the, the intended audience probably is not going to read all of that. And so we need to get better at short form. And it is an unfair, uh, you know, unequal terrain we have here. So your approach is starting with recognizing it in the first place with the antenna, I think is, I, I, I don't think it's simple. I think it, it's very complex to to teach that to people because we are so we are so brainwashed ourselves to accept some of these narratives that we get accustomed to it. Like, you know, the other day, if someone had to remind me what the 1488 means and neo-Nazi, you know, it's not something I think about every day. Um, mm-hmm. And so, so back to what we were saying, um, it seems like American Jewish students need a better antenna to recognize this, but we also need to agree on it. And just as a sidebar, I know, we're going to have you back on to talk about IRA definitions. That actually needs its whole own entire day. And I also would like you to go deep on the tropes in, in one of your next uh, visits with us. But, you know, it, it, definitely touching on it today. First of all, how do we teach this to our kids without overly scaring them? And how do we reclaim the narrative? It feels like it's different in America versus other parts of the diaspora. And the more the world is interconnected, it's, it's hard to clarify those boundaries. So what, what, when you do that, how, how are you finding success? Well, okay, it's a, it's a good question. You ask great questions. Um, I'm, gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna take a slight, slight step back and, and I want to diagnose a certain um, phenomenon, not a problem, a phenomenon. And that is the way that American Jews understand their Jewish identity. And it is around being a religious minority. They understand being a Jew as being a, a religion. Uh, so, for instance, if you look at FBI um, statistics on hate crime, the way that they discuss hate crimes against Jews is as a religious minority. Uh, in 1885, I believe, in 1885, Jews who settled in, in America had to really come to terms with what does it mean to be a Jew in this country where there's a separation between church and state, where they really want to integrate, they really want to assimilate, and they did really, really well. What they did is they wrote something called the Pittsburgh uh, Platform Manifesto. And if you read the document, it's it's basically a declaration of what it means. Here we are, Hinenu, like we're here, we've made it to America. These are our thirteen. I don't know how many principles they have, but one of their principles, or two rather, is that we understand that to be a Jew is to be. It's a religious category, and a protected religious category within the United States. And the second is. And this is heartbreaking, but it, it's there. You can research it. You can find it. Is that we jettison our ancestral ethnic identity? Palestine is not our home. America is. What that they do wow. effectively is they through the ba- what do you is in America you say you you throw the baby with the bathwater. They mm-hmm. they separated our ethnic ancestral identity, and they just they tore it away. What that, what the effect of that had on inter, on on many generations of American Jewry is that American Jews 
self-identify as a religious minority. You know, they go to temple, they have bar and bat mitzvahs. Israel is a place where you go and place a note in the wall because it's about religion. Israel's, the way that they conceptualize Israel is not an ethnic homeland or ancestral homeland. It's a spiritual place. Mm-hmm. That has had a detrimental effect, I believe, on reclaiming Jewish pride. Uh, when I think of myself, you know, why am I proud to be Jewish? I'm proud to be Jewish because I come from a people. I I come from a place called Judea or the land of Israel. I come from a people that have a shared history, a shared memory, that cared enough, these people, to pass it on to the next generation and the next generation. I call it a suitcase. I tell my students, mm-hmm. you know, somebody gave you the suitcase. It's yours. It could be really heavy. It could be like a burden. But if you want to look inside and take a look at all the stuff that somebody passed to you, you could, you could take it, you know, it, could, it doesn't have to be heavy and burdensome. It could be amazing. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. when you think of yourself as just a religious group, that pride is, it, it's not... Maybe I'm wrong, but I'm just thinking out loud right now with you. To me, the pride comes from a legacy of peoplehood, a legacy of knowing that I come from a people. I come from a place. Um, My roots are in the land of Israel. you're right and I, I had never been taught about 1885 and the Pittsburgh platform manifesto I mean this is literally the first time I'm hearing this it's interesting because this debate has gone around a lot you know are we are we a race are we a people mm-hmm. and people that's, that's a huge conversation um, but it, it's confusing and you know it would be confusing under a good environment and in the present political turmoil it's even more confusing and I can only imagine for the kids where it is but it, it's true I mean Irish people have pride in Ireland I don't I don't know that it's all Catholic pride I think it's Irish pride, you know connected mm-hmm. to a homeland so I think your theory is correct right and 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 I tell my students or any students that I need, I say, listen, a really hot commodity right now is identity. Everybody's after your identity. They are. It's, mm-hmm. a really, it's, 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 it's hot right now. It's for sale. You know, you're, it, whether it's a gender identity or a racialized identity. Jewish, mm-hmm. it's not sexy, you know, and I, and I put it out there on the table with them. I, it, Jewish, it's, it's ancient. It's, it's traditional. It, it carries with it lots of responsibility. But I, I know, and mm-hmm. I talk to them about this all the time, but you should know that everyone's after your identity. And yeah. to me, being a Jewish is so precious. It's such a precious thing. Um, so don't give it up so easily. Um, but, but, but once again, you know, you ask, you ask very important questions, like who is responsible? How do we get these kids to, to be proud I think we need to reclaim our ethnic identity, our ancestral identity. Mm-hmm. 
And, you know, we, we've been talking about Jewish education in America in the past, mm-hmm. the present, and and also the future, and and also some of the trends. And there's really two gigantic jobs that a Jewish educator has to do, and even one of them is a big accomplishment. You know, the first is instilling the basic Jewish heritage uh, from our whole entire history and also creating that connection to to uh, our ethnic identity. But the other one that maybe weighs even more on people's minds, although they go together, is preparing our kids to defend themselves in a world that's increasingly anti-Semitic. And, and let's be honest, the kids are the ones on the front lines. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. I, I see a lot of people that are they're comfortable, they're retired, or, you know, they're, they're our age. Um, but it's our kids who are on the front lines, and in many ways, for being on the front lines, they're the least equipped. So I want to unpack this. Um, mm-hmm. You know, have they, are, are children learning enough? Have we failed them? We sort of talked about that. But, um, you know, just tell me your thoughts here, because this is, our, our theme for the month is waves of despair versus the mm-hmm. ray of hope. And I know our listeners from around the world uh, everybody in many countries are experiencing this. Um, you know, what What are your thoughts on this? My thoughts are, my thoughts are both positive and negative. The negative is that you're, you, again, identified correctly that those in the front line are the students in high schools and in college. Um, and they are, they are on the front lines. Um, their teachers come completely indoctrinating uh, the classroom or even inadvertently indoctrinating because they heard it in their educational programming. But, um, yeah, they're definitely on the front line. What's what's interesting to me is that some of the kids that I've met um, in my uh, work with Club Z is they may not know all the history, but they know that what they're hearing is not right. They know that there's a sort of cognitive dissonance. You know, at home, Israel is so is talked about in most, wonderful ways and then they hear a really terrible slander and there's this kind of wait what and either the the the, the child the teen has the intellectual curiosity or fear of the teacher another thing is that these teachers are figures of authority and they have power grades so many times these teens tell me i know that one of my teachers telling me is wrong but i just i don't want to get a bad grade I'll yeah, fight later. I I'll too. fight later. I'll fight when I'm in college. I'm like, but in college, you're also going to have grades. Well, I'll fight when I'm when out of college. But out of college, you want to become partner in your law firm, right? Mm-hmm. It, it, courage is a very difficult thing to to teach. I don't know if courage mm-hmm. can be taught. Uh, one of the things that I do work on is the courage. I mean, it's going to sound really silly to you, but even the courage to identify as a Jew in school. We had a girl uh, who's now in college. I met her when she was in ninth grade. She told me that she told me in her senior year of high school that she went through high school. Nobody knew that she was Jewish. And she went to Club Z, totally proud Zionist. And I was like, what? I'm like, I was so surprised because she's this amazing young lady. And I said to her, no. I said, no, you're you're going to go to school and you're going to you're going to talk about being Jewish and you're going to talk about being a Zionist. And 
they need that push. And I pushed her. And then she did. And then mm-hmm. she started writing in the school newspaper. Wow. But, yeah, yeah. So there are amazing stories, but they need they need to feel inspired and supported. They well, need to feel inspired yeah. and supported. Well, let's talk more about Clubsy. I think okay. it's safe to say that Clubsy, from everywhere I know, Clubsy has a very special place in many of our listeners' hearts. Because you're seen as a ray of hope in an otherwise pretty stressful environment where Zionism is concerned. So what is Club Z? So I, I, I just wanted to say I'm not the founder of the organization. So I'm just, uh, I, I, work, uh, I work, I've been with Club Z for four years um, in the role of director of education where I wrote curriculum um, that addresses uh, the Arab-Israeli conflict, ability to stand up as a Jew, leadership skills, and of course reclaiming identity. But it's a youth, um, it's a youth movement, a Zionist youth movement. Think of BBYO, but a Zionist version that's more academic, meaning we we go into the education. Uh, we're we're really really. Uh, it's important for us to give the teens or equip them with really not just talking points. So that's the other thing I was. One of the things that I was really against and always have been in terms of education, is just saying, okay, well, when you hear this, you say that, myths and facts. Mm -hmm. Students need more depth. Uh, So what we do is also what I do when I teach is critical thinking skills, developing that. It's really important. Um, Very important. So so it's it's a Zionist teen youth movement that empowers young Jews to, to, to be very proud of who they are, and from that pride, they will act. They will protect the Jewish people. My my dream, my hope. I've seen some amazing, amazing things from young leaders that I've met. A young man, a young boy who came to me in tenth grade and announced, "Just so you know, Naya, I'm never going to be a leader the way my sister is. Please don't push me. I'm not going to be a public speaker. I'm not going to do any of these things. Please don't." I said, "Okay, but you know, I have." You know, I still push in different, you know. Well, he's co-president of Israel Club at his school. <laughs> he spoke in the city of West Hollywood during, he had gave a two-minute speech um, urging the city of West Hollywood to adopt the IRA definition. He spoke in front of city council. Wow. Wonderful. So it, it can be done, but it, you, you need to be that fire. You need to, you know, you need to inspire them. And that's the, and that, I have to say, is where the bigger problem lies is Jewish educators. Where are they? Where are these amazing, inspiring Israel-slash-Jewish educators? There's just yeah. a dearth of them. Well, I always, as a teacher myself, I always describe teaching as 50% subject matter and 50% psychology because you you have to sort of meet the student where they're at, you know. And so it sounds to me like the reason you succeeded with some of these people that might have been reluctant is you addressed the psychology of, you know, the, just that nurture and giving encouragement. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, Jewish education is more than just a cerebral information download. And um, sometimes maybe we, we do that. And I think, again, that's an advantage for teaching outside of academia, you know, very possibly. Um, and, 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 yeah, and it, and you're, what, what you said earlier is very true. There are adults 
that are learning sort of their second tier of Jewish education. And I, I can, you know, vouch for, even if you did BBYO and you went to the leadership camps and you did things, I would say I've learned things in the last five years that I never learned before. Um, and so it's, it, you know, it, it's a learning curve. It's not something you just learn once in sixth grade and you're set. There's a lot going on with all of this. So, um, you know, what, what is the biggest challenge in recruiting for Club Z? And how many chapters are there? So uh, there are uh, one, one, two, three, six, six or seven chapters across the country. Um, mm-hmm. The challenge is we, we tend to really do well with Jews or parents who have had direct um, experience with anti-Semitism. So Russian-speaking Jews, um, Persian Jews, uh, Jews, from, Mizrahi Jews, Jews from the Middle East. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit more difficult with American Jews who are slower to to understand why Zionism is integral to their Jewish identity. Why is anti-Zionism anti-Semitism? Because remember, as I explained before, American Jewry self-identifies as a religious minority. Anti-Zionism is the attack on ancestral Jewish identity, mm-hmm. much more than religious. Mm-hmm. So that's that's why it's a lot harder for a lot of American Jews to understand that anti-Zionism, it's not a, a political debate. It's a anti-Semitism. So in terms of recruitment, it's, you know, also, by the way, teens nowadays are so busy so, so busy. So in their schedule, because, you know, we, our program, you know, we require quite a bit of commitment because we are cultivating leaders. You know, you, we, mm-hmm. we want a really self-selective, cream of the crop type students who, who want to learn, who want to invest in an education, a Jewish education, who feel like they haven't gotten one. A lot of our teens are actually from public schools and not Jewish day schools. It's hard to recruit for mm-hmm. Jewish day schools because a lot of times they think, well, we already know this. The, the problem is they don't. They really don't. Mm-hmm. But which Jewish day school so, wants to hear you haven't done a good job? Nobody. Nobody wants to hear that. Yeah. I have two pre-submitted audience questions for you. Uh, the first is from Catherine Wolf, who I know you know. Uh, Catherine Par- writes, pardon? I, Catherine Wolf. Oh, um, Catherine Wolf. Yeah, and so her question is, I've seen firsthand the incredible impact of Club Z on teens, including my own, how it transforms youth into educated, confident Jews who can stand up for themselves and for Israel. What's required of a community to start a Club Z chapter? Very important. So it's a grassroots effort. And so usually when we go to a community, it's because parents have heard and are very concerned that their kids are not getting properly educated or prepared for the onslaught. And I'm sorry, I'm not being traumatic, but I do believe that it's an assault on Jewish identity that, that, is, that is happening. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of times we what is needed is committed, committed parents who understand that an investment in a Jewish Zionist education is really, really important. So it's driven by the community, driven by grassroots effort. So do they contact you and do you give them, you know, materials and um, like how does that kind of work? 
So it's a if whole process. Um, right, it's a whole process. They contact um, somebody at, at the organization, um, and then we obviously set up meetings to talk to the community. If we decide that it's that there's a lot of interest, we run a pilot program, uh, which consists of five uh, sessions. We really tailor it and design it. I, I mean, educationally and both social programming for that community. We work together for a whole year in pilot stage, and then, then it's like a transfer. Then, then we have to hire people in the in the new place, um, and kind of do a, a handoff. Well, we're still kind. Of, we're obviously they're still part of our organization, but you know, then we have we hire quote unquote Jewish professionals to run the program on the ground. It's wonderful. It sounds like you're really incubating the old school shuttle approach in a way and then handing it off to them. Would you would you agree with that? I like that. Yeah, I like that very much. I guess so, yeah. <laughs> um okay and Anessa asks, as a parent, what can you do to help your child stay strong and develop a proud Jewish identity when some of the anti Zionist dialogue is coming from their fellow Jewish classmates and their Jewish parents? This is very frustrating. Mm, that's that's a hard one. So, yes. What can you do? And very parent? common, unfortunately. And very yeah. common. So another, by the way, segment that you should do is the phenomenon of Jewish anti-Zionists. Um, that's oh, that's another <laughs> important conversation. We will be. You know, it, it's you have to talk to your kids. And not when there's a problem. Not only here's the my 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 challenge to the Jewish community, and that includes Jewish parents, is don't start talking to your kids about being Jewish when when something happens. Why don't we proactively discuss from the age of their five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten I have a son. We discuss, we don't wait for an anti Israel event or a classmate who says something. We discuss it from an early age. We pull out the map together. We we look. There's so many YouTube videos that are made about Israel, or the Jewish people. We we talk in the car. Why I feel in many ways Jewish activists and advocacy groups have not been so effective when it comes to college campuses that they're all reactive. They all wait. Oh, there's an anti-Israel event. All right, everyone, let's come together. There's going to be this anti-Israel, anti-Jewish event. Why do we have to wait for an anti-Jewish slash anti-Israel event? Why can't we proactively talk about the issues that are important? So my, I, I'm, I guess I'm not answering Inessa 100%, which is what do you do when your kid comes home and talks about, well, my Jewish classmate said this, this, this. I think your kid would have a better chance if we don't wait until your kid comes home and says, my Jewish classmate says this, this, this. Mm-hmm. If you start talking to them much earlier about this, much, much earlier. Um, yes. Yeah, so, well, but, but like, for instance, so my son who's in fourth... Mm-hmm. But, Go ahead. Right, my son who's in fourth grade, um, he, he, you know, he knows, because he, this is my world, Jewish advocacy, and he hears me discuss it all the time on the phone. And he asks me, why are there Jewish people who are against the state of Israel? And we talk about it. And I say, yeah, there are. Like, it does exist. There are people who are Jews 
And I say, do you, I think they're uncomfortable with certain things. But we discuss it. Or maybe they have lack of knowledge. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, it can't just be a permanent game of self-defense and reaction. There needs to be positive, you know, proaction and just celebrating pride and identity like every other group, you know, unapologetically celebrates their pride. And I think that comes from culture. That's not just book learning. You know, uh, people I know in Silicon Valley always say culture always wins. Um, mm, so it's a culture, true. it's a culture war, you know, it, it's, it's not, if it was the rebuild, I think we would have won by now, don't you? It, it's, it's culture. And sometimes it's a numbers game, uh, unfortunately with, you know, we'll, we'll be talking about social media and some other episodes coming up, but you know, with, with social media, it's quantity over quality. And so a lot of the metrics that we value things over that are maybe the right metrics are not necessarily what's common. And so it's very difficult because I know many Mm -hmm. parents dealing with that, they're like, what happened to my kid? Like the other person you said, it's like I did everything right and what I sent my kid to this expensive school and they came back and they're an anti-Zionist now. It's, it's, Mm -hmm. It's a problem and it's good that we're talking about this and all of this. So just wrapping down here, what else can parents do? What are some other ways that we're fighting back? And I know we'll go deep into IRA and, you know, other things more in the next time you're here. But um, can you quickly summarize the IRA definition and um, any other tools administrators and parents have to protect Jewish kids from specifically anti-Semitic bullying? Well, IRA is, okay, so IRA is a definition of anti-Semitism that has been in the works for many, many years, but it's the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance. And it was first actually institutionalized or adopted in many European countries. And in many cases, it's a very, very useful legal framework uh, that I believe institutions should adopt such as universities or high schools or maybe even journalists. Uh, What it is, it's a very comprehensive definition on what constitutes anti-Semitism and includes anti-Zionism as part of that definition. Many critics believe that IRA silences freedom of speech, and we could discuss that, but to that, it's just the irony. Who, those who say this are those who do not want Israel to exist. So they're kind of mm-hmm. crying that we can't be anti-Semites. You're, you're not letting us, you know, <laughs> be our anti You understand? But um, it has its limitations. Again, it's for a different conversation, but it's a great framework. So for instance, if let's say a student in school faces a lot of anti-Semitism in the form of anti-Zionism with teachers erasing Israel, um, and that happens, uh, from maps or present maps of the Middle East where it says Palestine and not Israel. You know, Jewish students feel that that is wrong, absolutely, and it is wrong because it's an erasure of our identity, a part of our identity, which is the land of Israel. What Mm -hmm. happens is, you know, the student goes to the parents, then if the parents feel bold and courageous, 
They'll go talk to the administrators. Then the, what usually happens is the administrators completely do not understand what's the problem. Is this a, is this a, a historical argument? Is this a political argument? And, and the parents are saying, well, no, 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 this is anti-Semitism. If you have a school that, where you have adopted the IRA definition, it's really great because then the parent could say, look, that's a violation of IRA. And then, mm-hmm. you know, administrators, they're bureaucrats in many ways. They understand process protocols and paperwork. Right. And if they have a paper that says IRA has been adopted at the school, it makes it so much easier to then Right. combat what's happening in the classroom. Exactly. Exactly. And, um, you know, I think parents would really help their kids by helping to ask, call up your schools or your local colleges and just ask, are you, do you adopt IRA? Is that your definition? Um, yep. You know, this is a local thing. It, 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 it's trickling down, but it also needs local grassroots efforts too. It's very much a grassroots thing in a lot of ways. Um, but, but many of the legacy organizations push it also in a good way. Mm-hmm. So um, mm-hmm. can you just uh, quickly contrast it with the JDA uh, definition? Because that's, that's basically those are the two that people talk about. Well, the JDA is not as well known, but the JDA was basically um, just, it, it, it breaks my heart. It was drafted by Israelis. Um, it's the Israeli. Jerusalem, what is it? What is it? To the Jerusalem Definition of Anti-Semitism, JDA, mm-hmm. is yeah. correct? Correct. It's quite recent, and it's a response to IRA. So it basically is a another framework, one that makes quite a lot of room for anti-Zionism. They basically mm-hmm. do not think that anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism. And that's what it so comes it's, down to. It, it, it's right, and that really is what it comes down to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have a Correct. simple way I, I, I bring it up. I just say that IRA was written by Jews, for, you know, not Jews, but, you know, Zionists for Zionists. And uh, JDA seems to have been written by anti-Zionists for anti-Zionists. Um, oh, my God, that's I mean, just it, genius. <laughs> you can have it. <laughs> I mean, it, it, great. It, it makes no sense in, in every other way if, if any other group of, you know, LGBT or, or any, you know, black, Asian, anything, nobody would let someone else define what offends you. Nobody. You know, mm-hmm. quite the opposite. It's, it's more like this is what offends me and it doesn't matter if it makes sense to you. This is the law of the land. So, I mean, I think mm-hmm. we just deserve equal treatment is I don't think that's asking for to, to ask for equality is not asking for a special favor here and somehow I don't know if it's we need massive assertiveness training or what but we seem to have forgotten that um, and that's why sometimes I actually really prefer the 3D when I'm talking to someone for the first time can you tell um, our listeners what that is real quick yeah so that was developed by Natan Sharansky who is a former Soviet citizen dissident who spent two decades, I believe, in Soviet prison for his crime, which was being a Zionist in the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. He um, was the chairman of Sachnut, which is the Jewish Israel agency. Um, he actually, so I met him and I asked him, so he developed this idea of the 3D test. And he said that he was with his grandkids in Israel and they went to see a movie. And he 
was wondering why is the movie so strange? And the grandkids laughed at him and said, well, it's because, you know, Saba, or, you know, in Russian, Dedushka, uh, you're not wearing your, your 3D glasses. And so he put them on, and, and, and you know, you, if you know what I'm talking about, if you watch a film that's made for 3D without 3D mm-hmm. glasses, nothing makes sense. And he said that that, that experience informed him his approach towards understanding anti-Semitism, which is this idea that no matter what, what, what we're talking about, if the goal is to defame, delegitimize, or apply double standards, so three Ds, defame, delegitimize, mm-hmm. or apply double standards to Israel or the Jewish people, in effect, it is anti-Semitic. If not an intent, in effect, it is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I so, love that. In other I words, that background right. as to how he yeah. got to that. That's a great story. <laughs> right. So then, in other words, when somebody says Israel is an apartheid state, what's the goal there? The goal is to de- uh, de- delegitimize. The goal is to demonize, and in, in such a defame. It, the goal is to defame, rather. Excuse me, defame and delegitimize. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and therefore, according to that 3D framework, it's anti-Semitic in effect. Mm-hmm. Well said. Yeah, I, I think that's sometimes an easy starting point. And then talking about IRA, but either way, these are things we'll definitely be talking much more about. And I know we'll have you back on to go deeper in that. Mm-hmm. So I want to just wrap down. Um, this podcast is not an academic webinar. So if Mm -hmm. someone is brand new to all of this and they want a crash course, do you have any uh, reading recommendations? And also, how can people learn more and support your work? Okay, so really two great books that I would love to, to, um, to tell the audience, listeners, is one is by Joseph Telushkin and Dennis Prager called Why the Jews. It's, it's made for, it's written by non-academics, um, and it's it's so easy to read, but it's basically the history of anti-Semitism. Why the Jews? What is why is there anti-Semitism? Why does it keep on happening? That's a great great book. It's very not not very long. Another one that is really important in in, in what we discussed earlier, this under, idea of our identity and American Jews, and why is there a growing gap? between us and, and Israel is a book by Daniel Gordas. It's called, if I remember correctly, We Divided, We Stand, or We Stand Divided. Uh, I think it was published mm-hmm. in 2019. It's really important as it captures the phenomenon, or rather the, the, the tragedy of American Jewry's departure from Israel and why. He, he captures it and he also explains why it is that American, and it, 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 it goes into the Pittsburgh platform. Um, it really goes deep into American Jewish history. It's a great book. Mm-hmm. So those two books, I think, are great starting points to understand what is happening today and the history of anti-Semitism. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. And if people want to uh, learn more about Club Z, what is the website? It's clubz.org. Perfect. Perfect. Okay, so believe it or not, there's a lightning round. <laughs> um, so you're you're our very first lightning round. So okay. um why are you proud? Why are you proud to be a Jew? 
because I belong to a people who have been, the attempts to annihilate have they've been so great. And despite all odds, it's not only have we survived, but we have thrived. We have given to the, I believe for us to be the light unto the nation. You know, Arthur Miller wrote a, a play um, called The Broken Glass. And one of his characters says, when the last Jew dies, the light of the world will go out. I believe that we have a purpose. I believe that our purpose is to shine the light and we do it in, in, in very particular ways. But I am proud to be part of a people that not only has survived, but thrived and given to, so, to the world. Hmm. And who are your Jewish role models? My Jewish role models um, is my grandfather, my mother, and um, Caroline Glick. I really love her. I think she's fearless, bold, and a truth teller. And I love people who speak the truth, who are not afraid of getting quote-unquote canceled. Mm. Mm -hmm. What keeps you up at night? Um... What keeps me up at night is, well, it depends on the night, <laughs> but <laughs> overall, <laughs> but overall, as it relates to what we're discussing, um, a frustration, an overall frustration with Jewish institutions and kind of this entrenched way of understanding how to run Jewish business. Uh, mm-hmm. What keeps me up at night is, is Jewish disunity. Now, I'm under no illusion that, you know, Jewish history is rife with disunity. I don't think that Jews have ever been, you know, Mm -hmm. so united. But when we stand together, it's so beautiful. I wish, it's one of my Mm -hmm. dreams is for the Jewish people to stop. You know, one of the things I kind of despise is this classifications of like black Jews, Jews of color, Mizrahi Jews, Ashkenazi Jews. We're just, we're Jews. Mm -hmm. And we'll just stand together and reclaim our really beautiful souls as nisham, like our Jewish neshamas together. Yes, yes. What makes you mad? Um, lots of things, but again, as it relates to this, what makes me mad is I hear a lot of frustration from within the Jewish community on the ground, right? I hear, I'm in a lot of different channels, WhatsApp groups, um, Facebook groups. Uh, obviously, I speak to a variety of, of people. And they're all so frustrated, right? And and when I tell them what needs to be done, and one of the things I tell them, and this is not going to be popular, is you have to take a stand in what you believe in. And they're so afraid to 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 take a stand and what they do is they, they'll they invite, for instance, the ADL to their community, knowing fully well that the ADL has had a not the best panacea when it comes to dealing with anti-Semitism. And I'm, it frustrates me that these well-intentioned people, they still reinforce these big institutions. And then they complain about those institutions. Then I say, well, you can't complain about them if you're going to invite them because you're reinforcing their status. 
that's, and, and we'll be that's talking with a lot of grassroots voices here. Yeah, we'll, we'll be having a lot of grassroots voices on our show and platform. Um, well, just, just wrapping up the lightning round, for those mm-hmm. who look up to you, what do you want them mm-hmm. to remember? I want them to remember, for those who look up to me, um, I want them to remember. I, I, I bet a lot of people look up to you. I know they do. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, that it's so important to to speak in what to what you believe in, to, to use your voice, to use whatever channel you have on this earth um, to to speak truth. If it's through writing, if it's through acting, if it's through educating, if it's through speaking, use your voice to speak the truth. That's really mm-hmm. I I believe that it's so important and people are so, they're terrified. We live in this, not the great time, you know, on the one hand, people are using their voice on social media and they're influencers. But on the other hand, if you don't say the the thing that, 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 that pleases the crowds, you can be canceled. And I just, I always tell my students and the people that I speak to, you know, you have, if you believe in what you're saying, if you truly believe in it, then you have to say it. And if you don't say it, it's really not good. Absolutely. Well, and lastly, what's your outlook on the future of the Jewish people? And are you hopeful? Well, you're talking to a, a Russian-speaking Jew. Um, uh, I see things, I'm a little bit of a pessimist. People who know me know that. <laughs> uh, so um, my outlook is, it, again, it depends on what day you ca- catch me. Um, but overall, I think it's the best. I think the truth of the matter is, if we look at Jewish history, it's the best time to be a Jew. We live in the best, most miraculous time where we have sovereignty back. We've returned to our homeland. Mm-hmm. Yes, there's anti-Semitism in the diaspora. Yes, there are Jews who are not proud. Yes, there are anti-Zionist Jews. But I am... You know what keeps me going is the fact that that we live in a very very fortuitous time to be a Jew, and the fact that we can move the needle a little bit. If I've gotten to two students or ten students or fifty students to now see themselves as being a link in a greater chain of the Jewish history, that's a win. To me, that's a win. Um, and, 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 and I hope I have done that. I think I have done that. But that keeps me going. That that really is something that really keeps me going. Um, in terms of my own outlook, I think that I think that being that anti Semitism comes with the territory of being a Jew. I think that as long as there will be Jews there will be anti Semitism. So my goal is never to eradicate anti Semitism because that would mean the eradication of the Jewish people. But what a great day it would be when the Jewish people stand together to combat anti-Semitism. Well, Dr. Nyalek, thank you for being with us today. And we look forward to having you back on again soon. You've given us so much to think about. And I heard a lot of really good Naya quotes that I think should start circulating <laughs> now too. <laughs> so thank you again. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for this. This is so important. So thank you, Laura. 
Oh, thank you. And we're, we'll be having you back on again soon, I know. Thank you for listening to Talking Point on Jewish TV channel, the voice of Jewish communities worldwide. We look forward to seeing you again.